Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to InfraLift, the podcast. This is episode 201 called April Christina. Today's episode is sponsored by Prove, a women's health company dedicated to providing information and solutions on key fertility hormones so they can reach their goals faster. Prove founder Amy Beckley, PhD, invented the first and only FDA-cleared PDG test after her own battle with infertility. When she learned that her seven miscarriages and two rounds of IVF could have been prevented by an inexpensive progesterone supplement, she set out to help other women better understand the success of their ovulation from home. Prove's newest kit, Complete, allows women to measure all four key cycle hormones that impact conception from the comfort of home so they can get pregnant faster. With just one test kit, you can better understand ovarian reserve, identify up to six fertile days, and check for successful ovulation. And now the free Prove Insight app takes your hormone knowledge one step further by providing numeric hormone levels, info about what they mean, and personalized action plans to help you reach your fertility goals faster. That's not all guys. Prove also offers an entire suite of at-home hormone tests and hormone supporting products to empower you with the right information on your journey. Okay, so you know I love female-founded companies and products that can truly benefit anybody battling infertility. So definitely check out Prove. It's spelled P-R-O-O-V. You can go to provetest.com, P-R-O-O-V-T-E-S-T.com, and you can enter the code Alley 25 and you'll get 25% off your first Prove order of $25 or more. Again, Infertile AF listeners are getting a special discount code. So go to provetest.com, P-R-O-O-V-T-E-S-T.com, enter the code ALI25, A-L-I-25, and you'll get 25% off your first Prove order of $25 or more. Thanks, Prove. This episode is supported by Receptiva DX. The Receptiva DX test can help couples struggling with unexplained infertility. Getting pregnant isn't easy, as so many of you know. Many couples struggle with infertility and unexplained infertility can be particularly frustrating. Women facing unsuccessful IVF may not know that endometriosis is the underlying cause, a disease that can impact the success rates of IVF treatments and often has no symptoms. The Receptiva DX test can help identify endometriosis before an embryo transfer, and it has the potential to save women the stress, anxiety, and cost of multiple failed IVF attempts. The good news is multiple studies show treatment of women with a positive Receptiva DX test improves live birth outcomes by over 50%. Receptiva DX can detect all stages of endometriosis and help women make better decisions in planning for pregnancy. You can learn more at ReceptivaDX.com or download their app, which is also called Receptiva DX. Okay, guys, I am so excited for you to hear my conversation with April Christina today. She is such a dynamic, incredible woman. She is a very outspoken women's health advocate focusing on endometriosis and fertility, and she's going to tell us all about her own endo journey today and her own fertility journey and infertility journey and where she's at now. So without further ado, this is April's infertility story. So April, it's so good to talk to you. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be with the chat with you today. I know. I'm excited to get into it. I, this is definitely not the first time, you know, we've connected and met. You did an amazing fertility rally live session not too long ago called all about endo with an infertility warrior who gets it. So we're definitely going to talk about that, but I always love to start at the beginning and ask, did you always want to have kids? And be a mom. Yeah. So that's always been a thing for me to be able to be a mother now as life has progressed on. Obviously, what motherhood looks like for me is definitely totally different now. Mm-hmm. But my dream and my desire is like I want to be able to feel my baby kick and I want to see my tummy grow. But now I'm becoming open to other options. But becoming a mom is definitely something that I've always wanted to see my grandmother, I was my grandmother my whole life mm-hmm. with both of my parents. So just seeing that dynamic and 
seeing how close I am to my grandmother and the dynamic of my grandmother and my mother, because that's my mother's mother. Like, it's just always been a goal of mine to be able to be a mom. Yeah. So what did you know about your fertility growing up? Did you, were you taught anything or did you know much about, you know, just in, in general, like what it was like to get, you know, we always talk about how in my case, for example, it was always like, you can get pregnant so easily. And it was kind of like the scared tactic where it was like, you have to use protection or you'll get pregnant. And I just grew up thinking it was so easy to get pregnant. If you didn't use protection, you were going to get pregnant. I mean, now we know, obviously that's not the case, but what were you taught? Yeah. So I was petrified of getting pregnant when I was a kid. And that obviously ties into my condition, which I didn't know until later on, because I started my menstrual cycle when I was nine. So I thought that like I had did injury to my body. Like I didn't know, like when you like first have your menstrual cycle, what it's supposed to look like. It's not like what they show on TV or what you're thinking it is, Um, especially with me being so young as not even a teenager yet, just trying to navigate through what a menstrual cycle is or looks like for me. Mm-hmm. At that age, being in the third grade. So my mom like immediately took me to the library to like read up on what a menstrual cycle is. And they didn't have kids books back then right. in the early 90s. You know, like nobody was thinking about let's make a kid's book because children may actually have it younger than what we're saying. Clinically, it can be. And so all I knew was like, okay, you're nine, but as a woman, you're an adult. Like this is this is the stage of going into adulthood and you can get pregnant. So I was always like really, really fearful of what I can do, like being a woman now, but I was still trying to be a kid at the same time. So I tried to not really think about it as much because I wanted to be able to enjoy my life. But my menstrual cycles was so heavy that it made it kind of hard for me to be the normal kid with having like activities and being able to really conduct myself in a way that the rest of my classmates did in gym, like that just wasn't a thing for me. So I was just always so fearful of like one, trying to fit in at that age and two, making sure that I don't do any more adulthood things right? <laughs> other than having my cycle every single month. So it was, it was different and traumatizing. For me that must've been hard. And yeah, you say traumatizing. Was anybody else in that same circumstance? Like, did anybody else have their period at nine or any of your friends? No. So my mom, like, she was like really, really good about it. And I believe that I became a pro when it came out to being in the public with being on my cycle. Um, She bought me like a fanny pack, but it wasn't like the fanny pack of like what we thought of. It was like the genuine leather and it had like a cute little pouch that like just had like enough (laughs) to fit the pack, but it wasn't too big. Like, okay, it was so classy. So it made me feel a little better. And then I asked my mom if I could wear it every day so that it didn't, it it didn't bring questions to my classmates to be like, Hey, why are you only wearing right? Like one, like one month. (laughs) Right. So I was like, this is, this is my favorite belt. (laughs) So I had to get a pass um, from school from the principal And from my teacher to be able to go to the bathroom frequently, because back then you only had a certain amount of bathroom passes per period. And that wasn't something that I can do. So my mom did actually make sure that I felt as secure as I could with being at that age, having my menstrual cycle so young, but Mm -hmm. it still was like really awkward trying to navigate through it. And I definitely didn't tell any of my friends because I didn't want like the boys to like say something and make a joke out of it. And I didn't want to seem like I had to be isolated from other people during that Mm -hmm. time. So I really like kept a close knit of not sharing that until I got into high school when everybody else was talking about it. That's a lot to navigate at that age. That's so heavy. And to try to kind of get through it. And you said that was heavy cycle as well. So was that early signs of endo? Yeah. Now that I think back on it, it absolutely was like, I threw up all the time. I had really, really bad cramps. Like in the summertime, I used to go to Georgia because my dad is an identical twin. So I always wanted to be around cousins because we all looked alike. We was pretty much around the same age. Like it was so much fun, but I knew that those two months, like two of those weeks, like I would not be able to function how I would normally function. And they were like really supportive, but it still really was like bothersome for me because I'm like, man, like here I am again. But now that I'm thinking back on it, I'm like, whoa, I should have known. Like I had a pediatric GYN. My parents were doing all the things that they could, but at 13, 14 years old, I was on oral contraceptives and didn't even know what that was. And I was a virgin. So 
it was just navigating through. And now that I'm older, like really understanding everything now, I'm like, hmm, probably should have seen a specialist right there. Right. (laughs) Right. When I got those pills, like I should have, it it should have been a marker for me to understand that there was something else happening that normal girls my age wasn't going through. Right. But how do you know that? You know, we always say you don't know what you don't know. Right. So being the only one that was going through it, how are you supposed to know that? But I have yeah. to your mom because it sounds like she handled it like a total pro. And like, I love that. Yeah, because we're just thinking that I, yeah, we're just thinking that I had it early in my pediatrician. Right. I, I loved her. Like, I literally stayed with her until I was 21. And so she told me like, you cannot come here anymore. Like, you're in college. <laughs> you aged out, April. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, sorry. But she was so amazing. But she was the one that was proactive with my mom. Like, they had a plan. Like, they did all the things that they thought was right at that age because back then there wasn't commercials and different studies talking about endometriosis as there are now. So I'm thankful that there are kids at that age that do have access, but I didn't have that. And I didn't have the clinical signs and symptoms of endometriosis. So it made it very challenging for me to finally be diagnosed, which happened in my late twenties. Okay. So it is wild to think about how this wasn't that long ago. You said it was the nineties, right? I mean, that's yeah. doesn't seem that long ago, I but know. it's such a different landscape now, thankfully for the generations that are, you know, the young women and men yeah. who are coming up now, you know, they do have more information and people are talking about things like this more, but back then it was just, it wasn't discussed. It was like very it taboo. Wasn't. Did you really feel- a don't act, don't tell kind of thing? Totally. Did yeah. you feel like it was like your fault or did you have any like guilt or depression or any of those kinds of feelings? Cause you're kind of like have to hide this part of you. Right. Yeah. So that's like twofold. So when I first found out that I was having my menstrual cycle, like all of my cousins had it very young, but I was the youngest. And it was like, Oh, I had it when I was 11. Oh, I had it when I was 12. It's okay. So I was like, Oh, okay. Nine isn't too bad. Like, I'm not thinking, you know, we're all talking about it as kids. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, this is just a thing in my family. Like, we all experience this. And then when I was officially diagnosed with endometriosis in my 20s, that was when the depression started sinking in. Mm. Because that's when I was old enough to go back and remember all of the times that I couldn't do things that my friends were doing when I couldn't go to the movies and I couldn't go bowling, when I couldn't go ice skating, all of those things started replaying in my mind. And I'm like, this is the reason why. So now maybe if I was diagnosed earlier, would have been able to find different remedies to help me cope like I'm doing now to be able to be what normal is for me and what my daily activities are like that's when everything really started sinking in. And then now I was at a place where I didn't want to do anything Mm -hmm. because then I went down a deep rabbit hole of Mm -hmm. doing like so much research for myself to try to figure it out that like, I really drove myself mentally insane because I was so obsessive over making sure I don't be at the place that I was before when I was diagnosed. Mm -hmm. So then and now went to, okay, well I'm calm and my cousins had it early and it'll be all right to no, now this will never happen. Like nothing like this will ever happen again with me ever, which is why I went down a rabbit hole when I was diagnosed with infertility. But mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just yeah. a thing because I just want to make sure. Right. Well, I want to talk about the diagnosis. Did you meet your husband before you were diagnosed or after? After. After. Okay. All right. So t- let's talk about the diagnosis. When did you find out that this is what you were dealing with? Okay, so this story, like everyone is like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Okay. So I was already a healthcare professional in the hospital. And at the time I was a CNA, like just trying to figure everything out. At that time I was working on an orthopedic unit and one of my patients was the OBGYN. So when you're on orthopedic unit, you get in surgeries, you're there for a minimum four to five days because you're getting some type of replacement. So she was there, it was like the fourth day. And I was like, hey, doctor, like, I like, I know you're a patient, but it's like something going on with me. I want to talk to you about. So I, you know, briefly explained to her. And I was like, you know, I started my period when I was nine. Like, it's so bad. Like, I have to get FMLA because I'm in so much pain. I don't want to lose my job. Like, I'm just starting out in the medical field. All these things. And she was like, oh, you have endometriosis. Just make an appointment. I'll give you my number to the doctor's office. I won't be there but the NP is covering for me. We have to do a full workup on you. I was like, it's, 
never heard of it before. How do you we spell never it? heard that word? Don't even know it exists. Like, wow. what is this? And she was like, yeah, everything you're telling me pretty much sounds like endometriosis. And she was an African-American woman. So uh-huh. that was the main thing that made me want to ask her a question because I'm like, maybe I'm missing something. And having an African-American woman that is a physician and an OBGYN Maybe she'll be able to tell me something that I don't know as being a black woman that I'm missing. Right. And she was like, yeah, I've had, I've had other patients come in that dealt with the same situations as you saying the same complaint, saying the same symptoms, and they clinically had endometriosis. And that's how I was unofficially diagnosed. And then I went to her office, did a full workup. I changed my doctor completely, got all of my medical records and switched over to her. Yeah. Got an exploratory laparoscopy. And that's when I was officially diagnosed with endometriosis. Were you frustrated? Like, why did no one ever bring this up before? How come you had never heard that word before? You know, I was so confused because at the time now in my twenties, I started having excruciating leg pain. So I couldn't walk. I couldn't drive. It was so bad. So they kept thinking that I had blood clots. Right. So I'm going every three months to get Dopplers, make sure I don't have pulmonary embolisms, make sure the blood clots, potential blood clots didn't travel. Like, and I'm consistently doing workups for the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. So now I'm having all these doctor's appointments. And then that made me even more angry because I'm like, I'm saying what's wrong. And I understand that clinically it can seem as if I have blood clots and there was something else happening. And then that's when, when I got with my endometriosis specialist, I had to have two surgeries that was when I realized that the endometriosis had went on my nerves. And that's why I was experiencing the leg pain that I had because I went undiagnosed for so long. Oh my gosh. And that's something that can't change. Like I still deal with the leg pain because that's something chronic that has caused so much damage to the nerve tissue for a long period of time that I'm still dealing with that. Wow. I'm so sorry. I've never heard of the leg pain actually from endo. It is so bad. Like it's not as bad as it was when I was first diagnosed because I do different activities and exercises and stretches. So it do help, but it does not matter. Like if my cycle is on or off, it it hits whenever it wants to hit. And I have to, I think what has helped the process is understanding that that's something that I have to deal with now and mentally preparing myself versus Mm -hmm. getting myself worked up when I was in my depressive state, like everything was heightened. Yeah. So now that I'm able to calm down and really understand things, it makes it much easier for when I have a flare or anything okay. like that. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit more about the depressive state? Like, what did that look Absolutely. like for you? Yeah. So for me now, I'm able to recognize it, and I'm so thankful for my therapist. But back then, I didn't think therapy was a thing for me personally. Yeah, yeah. And I realized how beneficial it was. But back then, I would completely isolate myself. I wouldn't want to talk. I would stay in my room. And because me and my brother have an 11 year difference, like I grew up by myself Mm. for a long amount of time since I'm the baby of the family. So it's not a far-fetched thing for me to be by myself. I would literally have to hang out with my friends. So I didn't want to have to explain anything to them, although they were very sympathetic to what was happening. Mm -hmm. It's different when you actually have endo sisters or people with a chronic condition in the community to really understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. So I, I just stopped talking. Now I realize when I'm getting to that place and I tell my friends like, Hey, I need a minute. I find myself going deep down into that hole Mm -hmm. so that they know like, Hey, let's, let's bring it out. Like, let's, let's see what's happening. But before I didn't know that that was a thing for me. So I just remained quiet for months on end. And then I would realize, okay, well I'm better now. (laughs) <laughs> until oh. the next episode happened. And then I would go back, like nothing ever happened again. That's when right. I realized that there was a problem because I yeah. could snap into that state and not say anything. Mm-hmm. And then I could wake up like everything is good. And I'm like, but nothing changed. Right. So how did I wake up today? And yesterday was something different. Right. Exactly. So when yeah. you say you have like a flare up or something, what is that? What does that look like for you? What are the symptoms that you have? Yeah. So the irony in this, which now I've learned to understand within myself is that I look like I'm like four or five months pregnant. Oh, okay. And so my uh-huh. stomach is completely descended. It's yeah. very hard. It's, I'm cramping. It's a lot of pain. 
And it's very sad for me because like I'm I'm trying to actively have a kid. Right. But I think now I've learned how to do the positive reinforcements and something that my therapist is telling me. I'm like, hmm, I think I'm gonna be cute. <laughs> I think I'm gonna look okay. Um, and that's what's helping me to oh. turn my sadness into happiness. Right. That it just gives me something to look forward to mm-hmm. and to just do the proper steps that I need to within that moment while I'm having a flare and not to overexert or overwhelm myself. Okay. So have you had surgeries up, up until this point? Yes. So okay. when I was initially diagnosed, I had one surgery. It was like 35 minutes and it was an ablation. I didn't know the difference between an ablation and an excision mm-hmm. at the time. And then 10 months later, I had breakthrough bleeding all over again. Oh, Symptoms, all, it was just bad all over again. So then my mom, thank God for my mother, she went and found an excision specialist. And she was like, no, we're going to this doctor. We're going. Mm-hmm. So we went all the way to the city. And that's when I found out that my endometriosis had came back with a vengeance. And then I had my second surgery 11 months after that. That surgery was the excision one. And it was seven and a half hours long. Oh, my God. My, yeah, my endometriosis had spread all the way to my bowels. I had no clue. Like I was urinating fine. I was having bowel movements fine. Like Mm -hmm. I had no symptoms, like no pain anywhere in a reproductive areas as far as, you know, using the bathroom Mm -hmm. that I would think that endometriosis was there. But when he went in, he had to do completely every, like reconstruct everything over again. My ovaries was completely glued together. He had to separate those. I had chocolate and chocolate cyst is one of the clinical symptoms of having endometriosis. Okay. So what, can you tell people well. that don't know what is chocolate cyst? Yeah. So they're regular cysts that is within your body, but they look, they actually look brown. Mm-hmm. So that's how they're able to clinically tell. And usually when you have a progressive state of endometriosis, chocolate cysts, you usually find in with it as well. Mm-hmm. So I had a few of those as well. I had fibroids. It was I, I needed a whole tune-up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> a whole tune-up. <laughs> right. And it was it was really challenging for me to understand, especially being that I thought that I was doing what I needed to do as far as finally finding out that I'm diagnosed, like changing what I thought a healthy lifestyle was for me mm-hmm. until I realized, which I did not know, that there was an actual endometriosis specialist. It's not that many of them. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, insurance doesn't cover it, but I do understand why, because they have to excise so much within your body to make sure that you're okay. Like mm-hmm. I do understand that part of it. It was just so much. And now it's been March will be 12 years oh, wow. since I had my last surgery. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. My excision specialist is still my doctor. Mm-hmm. I go to him every year just to do check-ins to make mm-hmm. sure that everything is good. Um, before it was every three months, then I went to every six months and then now I'm at every year. So I'm really excited about that. Just really That's following- great the regimens that he's telling me, yeah. um, no red meat, no chocolate, like different things that I know personally for my body that will cause a flare. It's subjective for everyone that's dealing with endometriosis. But for me specifically, those are the main trigger points that would make me right. have a flare and make my abdomen descended. So uh-huh. I, I've completely done, I haven't had red meat in 12 years. So, oh, wow. Um, so what did the checkups look like April? Obviously they're not going in to do surgery, right. For the checkups. How do they, how do they do the checkups? Is it like a sonogram? That's a good question. Yeah. So they do a transvaginal sonogram, okay. urine sample and full blood workup. Okay. Okay. Every year. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. You've been through so much with all of this. So when did you start connecting with your endo sisters, like when did you find people on the, you know, either social media or, mm-hmm. you know, this was, I guess, 12 years ago, social media wasn't really a big thing, right? Were there <laughs> no groups or like, how did you find people to talk to about this and find people that were going through what you were going through? Cause obviously we both know how important it is to connect with people that are going through the same things. Cause there's that level of understanding that people that aren't going through it don't get. Yeah. So actually my first line of defense of therapy was starting my Instagram page. Okay. That's what helped me come out of being stuck in my room all the time, Uh not wanting to talk, not wanting to do anything. So I started it because I wanted to find other people like me that had endometriosis. Yeah. When did you start it? What year was it? Oh my gosh. Nine years ago. Okay. I started Instagram. So everybody should know that you should be following. I'm April Christina on Instagram. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, it was so it was so crazy because I was like, how did this? I didn't even know how Instagram worked. Right. But I knew that there was something called hashtags. Like, obviously, this is a thing now. But back then, we were like, oh, there's hashtags. So I was doing hashtag endo warrior, hashtag endo sister, hashtag okay. endo community, hashtag one and eight, like hashtag one and ten. Like, I was doing right. anything possible that would allow me to find people with endometriosis. So when I started doing that, I found out that there was a support group in Connecticut so I used to drive, so I'm in New York. I used to drive two and a half hours every month to the support group because at the time, and the Warriors, which is another support group now in New York, it wasn't founded yet. And I just mm-hmm. wanted to be around other people that can share like their tips and their strategies on how they were able to cope and are coping with going through endometriosis. So I did that every month and I was mm-hmm. working overnight. And my mom was like, you have to work. And I was like, I know, but I, ha- I have to see them all. Like I have to. See yeah. Them. It's like your lifeline. It absolutely was. And that's what gave me the strength from month to month to continue and not to fall into that depressive, sad state that I was in before. Yeah. So between my support group, and I'm still friends with them now to this mm-hmm. day, like they have kids, like they have been like so inspirational to me, like learning how to freeze eggs and IVF, like now, eight years later, like th- these are my original true blue friends within a community that really helped me just power myself into understanding mm-hmm. what a community really looks like. So that's that's what started my social media platform. I was like, there has to be somebody else. There's one yeah. in 10. Where's the other one? <laughs> the other right, one? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And it's such a testament to community, you know, like we said that these are your friends for life. It's almost like you cut through all the bullshit of like, when you don't know somebody and once you're like, Oh, you're going through that too. Like, did we just become best friends? Like, yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah. You know, and like the it's community really is like amazing. Mm-hmm. It's like, once you find out that you have endometriosis too, it's like an instant connection of like, I get it. Like there's less explanation. Mm-hmm. You really just understand that person's true heart. And totally. that really is to want to find answers have tools and resources and to be able to talk to each other to get through to the next day. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Let's talk about how you met your husband. Okay. So <laughs> I met my husband at church. This is so funny. I say the story one way, but we all know that he says the story another way. Right. So, <laughs> so when I came to church, my husband, well, I didn't know him at the time, but he was singing. I was like, I know I haven't missed that many services that there's another person singing. But I had to take a break from singing. So I wasn't at rehearsal. I didn't know any of the new people that was on there. And I'm like, have I really been going that long that I don't I don't know any of these people up here? And there's an actual man that's singing. So it was funny because after service, <laughs> he came up to me and was like, oh, I know you can sing. And I was like, um, who are you? What's your name? <laughs> like, I didn't, even, I didn't even know him. And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I know you can sing and you need to be singing. I was like, but how do you know I can sing? Who told you I can sing? He was like, you made faces when there was a wrong note and only singers make faces when there's a wrong note. And I oh was like, oh my God, I love that. I was like, true, but still, what's your name? So then now I end up searching for him. I was like, he has to be friends with other people in my church. So I, I found him on Facebook. And then that's when I got into painting and he was like, oh, you paint. Like, and so we just started talking through Messenger, through Facebook Messenger. And then we started hanging out, but it wasn't just us two. It was a group of us. And every mm-hmm. single time the group was supposed to hang out, everybody canceled. So I'm oh. like, did you call them <laughs> to tell them to cancel? Because why is it always just be a you? Right. And the rest is history. And then we just started dating. And then we started exclusively dating. <laughs> And then we got engaged and now March will be five years that we've been married. Did he ever fess up that he did tell people to cancel? So he would just start. He will not tell people that he <laughs> told them to cancel. He will not tell people that he approached me first. Okay. His story is I did everything first. And I said, oh no, oh, I, okay. I, I was an innocent bystander and you came up to me and pulled my card. Needless to say, Great. I started singing again. So I will say that he did bring that yeah. part out of me because I was like, I'm not singing no more. I'm done. Oh. And now with everything that's taking place now in my life, as far as music is concerned, like I'm definitely forever grateful 
to yeah. him because I was just like, all right, this is just, I'm not doing this no more. Right. So. Right. Yeah, it's so about to be five years in March. How long before you guys started talking about, you know, having, building a family and having kids and stuff? Yeah. So for my 30th birthday, this is before I met him, but for my 30th birthday, I went to a reproductive endocrinologist because that was my birthday present to myself because I wanted to make sure that I was okay. That's um, amazing that you did that. Yeah. Like being in the endometriosis community, I felt like it was important for me to be able to advocate for myself and to Great. tell others how to advocate for themselves. Um, especially when it comes to that, because when you look up endometriosis, the first thing you see is infertility. Like that's like every, every bullet, the first bullet is infertility. So I know that that can be an effect from having endometriosis, but that's not everyone's story. Mm-hmm. So I had just wanted to make sure so that when God blesses me with someone, I'm like, okay, well, I- I'm okay. You know, like that was just something for me because it just makes it hard because you, you never know if someone is okay with that. Like, I feel like I right. should be upfront with that part of my journey of my life. And that's, you know, if you want to be a parent, I do too. And here's what I'm faced with. So when I went to the reproductive endocrinologist, I was totally fine. Like everything was great. And a few months after that, like I met him and we became friends and he looked up endometriosis for himself. Like I never wanted to put that burden on him because I know how that can be a strain to relationships and more or less someone knew that you're meeting that you actually like. Like I Mm -hmm. never wanted that to be a thing for us, Mm -hmm. but he took the initiative to look it up. And obviously with my social media being public and at that time it was getting leveraged, like I wasn't going to hide what I was doing, but I didn't want that to be the firm foundation of our relationship. Um, So when we finally got married and up until that point, everything was good. When we got married, I was like, this should be okay because I've been going to a reproductive endocrinologist. Like we're okay. What did the reproductive endocrinologist, sorry to interrupt, but when you went on your 30th birthday, what did they tell you? That I was fine. Okay. He said. He's amazing. So he said that I was fine. My AMH was okay. My FSH was okay. okay. I had more than enough follicles. So he was like, but don't wait until you're 36, 37 thinking that this will be okay. So right. I was like, you're right. I said, I understand the disclaimer. He was like, because you have endometriosis, like this is, this is great. Like you're in the margins within your age range. Like you're absolutely good, but just make sure five to 10 years from now, like you can't just say, but my AMH was, and I'm like, I, I understand. Right. I, full disclosure. So when three months came into our marriage, I was like, hmm, I'm pushing. I'm, I'm in my, I'm in my mid thirties. Like, and I always remember what the reproductive endocrinologist said. So I was like, I'm going to wait six months. I'm not going to wait a year. I'm going to wait six months. If this, if we are not pregnant by six months, I'm, I'm going back mm-hmm. because I don't want to wait a year. And in six months, so much can happen. Oh my God. I'm so glad that you said that because I feel like they always give you that wait a year, wait a year, wait a year. And, and we're always telling people, you don't have to wait a year. <laughs> no, like, I did not want to wait a year. Just, yeah. Just make sure. So you have a baseline. And that's mm-hmm. what I tell people all the time that contact me. I understand that going for questions regarding your fertility can be very challenging at heart, but all you're doing is collecting data. That's all you're doing just so that, you know, so you can have a peace of mind, whatever that looks like for you. Exactly. So when I went, lo and behold, my AMH had plummeted and I was devastated. I that when I say devastated, like I, I remember how much I slept and it was minimal. Like I cried mm-hmm. until I fell asleep, not because I was sleepy, but because I cried so hard that night because that's how devastated I was. Yeah. Your body just like shut down. Right. It was like, and then yeah. I woke up to a tear. It's like, I wasn't even trying oh. to think about it, but it was like a reflex. Like, you know how the doctor like hits your knee and then like yeah. the, the bottom part of your like, <laughs> it literally was a reflex. Like I woke up and I was like, ah. and my husband was like, what just happened? Why are you part of was like, you don't remember this doctor's appointment? And he was like, babe, it's going to be okay. Like, we'll get through it. I was like, it's okay for you. Mm -hmm. It's not okay for me. And that was very hard for me because I'm like, this is my infertility. And he kept Mm -hmm. saying, no, this is our infertility. I'm like, no, this is my AMH. He's like, no, this is our AMH. And I was like, no, you don't get it. You don't get it. Like, it was so, so hard for me. Very devastating when I found that out. And then I went down a rabbit hole trying to figure out what was next for me because the endometriosis community I have down pat Mm -hmm. endometriosis understanding that like I understand that 
mm-hmm. infertility, this was a whole new world for me. Right. A whole new world. And I had friends within the community, so I was thankful for that. But I didn't even know where to begin for myself. Like, it, right. was, it was very, very hard. So very where hard. did you begin? What did you guys do? So my husband was asleep. So this is the first night. My husband was like, I'm going to get some rest because I know you're not going to be able to sleep. So once I woke up after like I took my my little hour and a half nap, I woke up and I went to YouTube and I was like, I want to find an African-American woman that has endometriosis and a low AMH. So that was the tagline that I was looking for mm-hmm. on YouTube to try to find any and everybody at this point mm-hmm. to get like any type of advice. Like yeah. I just, I just wanted to hear a good story. Just did you find people? Story. I did. I found someone and then I went down another rabbit hole, like <laughs> Allie, like I just went down, so- I went down rabbit holes after rabbit holes. And so then I contacted her on Facebook. I contacted her on Instagram. I'm like, look, I know you don't know yeah. me, but I I literally stayed up and watched all your videos yeah. on YouTube. And it was an inspiration to me. I would just love to talk to you. And she replied back on Instagram and she texted me her number and we started talking and she has two beautiful babies. And it, her story is, oh my gosh, I don't do her story justice, but her story is amazing because her AMH was way lower than mine. Mm-hmm. She went through her first IVF cycle. Her IVF cycle was aborted in the middle of her retrieval, long story short. And then she was going to do donor eggs and she ended up deciding not to do donor eggs. Her husband was like, well, let's just wait a little bit. Let's just see. And she was just like, wait, no, but I don't know. So she started taking the right vitamins and just changing her healthy eating habits. And she naturally conceived. So now she has two beautiful daughters naturally. And then her aim is just skyrocketed back up like nothing ever happened which sometimes is not everyone's story but to hear a story like that with someone that fit the criteria of what I was looking for that just gave me a glimpse of hope to know that anything is possible and Mm -hmm. her story may not be my story but at least I know that I can write whatever my story is by continuing on our journey and that was what I needed yeah Yeah. I love that. And I love that you took matters into your own hands and I love that she wrote you back. I mean, you know, we always say this is the worst club with the best members because people do really want to help each other because we know how shitty it is and we know how painful it is and traumatic and to connect with somebody that's like, I get it. It means it makes such a difference, you know? So I'm so glad that she touched with you. And the irony with that is she was actually, well, she is a registered nurse. And she was going into coaching. So that's how I initially found out what fertility coaching was. I didn't know that it even existed or that it was even a thing. Right. So she took me through her process of what her coaching was when I started my first cycle. Uh And that's how I was able to navigate. And I don't don't know if I would have been able to make it without her because I had someone that has been through the journey one someone that was coaching me as well to be able to understand what Mm -hmm. was happening because there's so many, oh my goodness, there's so many emotions that you go through when you're (sighs) on your cycle that you really don't expect to happen that do. And so I'm forever grateful to her, Mm -hmm. forever grateful. Mm -hmm. So in terms of starting like treatments and stuff, when did you guys go down that road and like, what have you done? You know, as little or as not as little, but as much as you're willing to share, I'd love to hear, you know, what you guys have gone through so far. Yeah. So when I found out that my AMH was low, um, the reproductive endocrinologist at that time has suggested IUI. Now I told you I went down a rabbit hole. Yeah. So I knew that, (laughs) so I knew that IUI for me personally and financially would not make the most sense for my family. I feel like April, you are a master, like Googler, (laughs) like, you know, exactly how to find what you are looking for. Like, yeah. Keywords and SEO is a thing for me. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yeah, I could tell. So I went to her and I was like, you know, I went to the research and I said, um, but you know, why would you suggest an IUI for me? It was someone that is in their mid thirties with an AMH level being this way. And I want to have a child. Like I want to be able to do it as progressive as possible. And her response to me was, well, I don't know how much you can afford. So I suggested IUI first because IVF is more expensive. Okay. And I can, I understand that because being an advocate and being an African-American woman, 
we don't have as many resources or they think that we don't have as many resources or the knowledge that I had because she absolutely asked me like, well, how did you know to, to ask the question for you to do IVF first and not IUI? Because this is not something that a person that is just finding out that they're faced with infertility would ask. So that's when I explained to her, I said, well, actually, um, your office follows me on Instagram and I'm an advocate for women's reproductive health now that, you know, I've been diagnosed with infertility, but, you know, I specialize in talking about endometriosis and then the conversation changed, ah. which made it, it was really sad for me because that put me in the shoes of someone else that did not have the access and is not as fortunate as myself to be able to know these things. And when so I explained it to her, then she was like, well, to be honest, I think we should do IVF first. Okay. Okay. So that, that was, there's a, I feel like there's a lot to unpack there. There was a lot of stuff happening and yeah. I had to want, there was a lot of things happening, but then I also had to realize that I had to put my advocate hat on, but I also had to be a patient first. Yes. So, and then I had to make sure because my husband was there to make, and he's very educated on everything. I mean, he looked up endo first without me right. even telling him to. So he was very educated on what was happening as well. And he was like, yeah, I don't, my wife doesn't need IUI. So now you not only have me talking about it, but you have a supportive partner so that great. is very well-rounded as well. And I was very thankful for that moment because there are a lot of people that are not fortunate enough to be able to understand that. And you're just trying to collect as much information as possible right now and then go home and digest it. But I literally had to do everything within that office visit at the same time to make sure that I made the right decision for my family mm-hmm. and our future. Yeah. So it was it was very challenging. I think that's also what made me cry so much when I left the doctor's appointment was because it finally hit me that I was taking off the advocate hat. And then that's when I 100% became a patient. And that's right. when it really hit like I'm dealing with infertility. I have a low AMH. They mm-hmm. suggested IUI and then changed their minds because I knew some resources and I actually did my homework of having right. knowledge that they said, oh no, you know, you really need to do IVF. And then do I really want to proceed forward at this clinic? It was just all right. of the things happening at the same time. And I was yeah, like, that's a lot to process. Yeah, my motherhood depends on whatever decision I make next at this point. Oh my God. I love what you just said, because that is so true. The stakes are so high. And I feel like with my own stuff, you know, and I think a lot of people can relate to what you just said, me included is like, I remember like being faced with go this route or go this route. And I'm like, I don't know, like you tell me what to do. And they're like, well, you need to decide. And I'm like, but I want, I just want someone to make the decision for me, because if I go this way and it's wrong, I might not become a mom. Like, I know that was the point when, yeah, no, we was in school and we used to make like the origamis and we used to to do with the numbers that that you, yes, yes, yes. yes, I needed that. That's what I needed in that moment because it's, it's, and again, like, especially when you're doing your first cycle, um, for a lot of people, not everyone, but for me, and I'll get into that as well. It's trial and error. You do not know, but you want to make sure that before you get to that first trial, that you have your whole case lined up so that when time comes to be able to execute it, that you're making the best decision. And sometimes that's not easy, but you have to make sure that you collect as much information as possible to make that decision. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that because honestly, to be like, to be completely honest, when I went into it, I did not. I was just like, I'll do what the doctor says. I didn't advocate for myself at first. Um, I didn't know what, it was so overwhelming for me. So obviously you're highly intelligent that you're able, and your husband too, were able to process all this information, but it's, it can be so daunting, you know? Yeah. So I ended up going to another fertility clinic to answer the second part of um, your question. I ended up going to another fertility clinic, but we had to take a break because when we finally decided a few months after that we was going to move forward, the pandemic hit. And that was when we didn't know what to really do. And there was so much uncertainty, unfortunately, in this world that people's cycles were canceled because Mm -hmm. of COVID, because we didn't know what we can do, what we can do. Like they had to create a whole new protocol in fertility clinics for 
what to do in COVID and you're still trying to do egg retrievals and mm-hmm. transfers. Um, so we had to take a break. We did everything virtually that we could do virtually. And then when doing your cycling, your retrieval was deemed essential because that was when like they had like the essential markers of what appointments were essential and what wasn't. That's when we was able to proceed forward with our cycle. Um, and we did the first cycle. And it's so crazy because I remember exactly every single date where everything happened. So next week is actually when I started priming because everything happened around Christmas. And okay. Gotcha. So this becomes like very nostalgic mm-hmm. and kind of a sad emotional time for me in the December, January timeframe, just yeah. because I remember what I was doing this time two years ago. Okay. Um, so I started day one of my simulation and for people that don't know stimulations is the protocol that your physician places you on to be able to start your medication for mm-hmm. your cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, I started that on December 27th mm-hmm. and I was like, Oh, I, like, I was so nervous, like so nervous. I, I couldn't yeah. do none of my injections. Yeah. My husband did all of my injections. He did. That's amazing. He was a pro. Yeah. <laughs> he was a pro because if it was left up to me, they would still be here because there was no way I could see myself giving myself injections. But we started on December 27th and I had my retrieval on January 7th. Um, this January 7th will be two years. I can't believe it's been two years. It'll be two years. Um, unfortunately, by the time I got home, my cycle was over. None of my eggs were viable. They so didn't sorry. make it. So I was really, really sad because... Yeah. We were literally like pulling into the parking lot and I was like, man, like I'm in pain, but this isn't like endo pain. Like I could, I could deal with this. Like, this isn't bad. Like, and I've been, I've dealt with chronic pain for so long right. that I don't, my pain threshold was You're so high. Me. I don't even, I, I don't know if it was bad or not, to be honest. Okay. Um, and when we got into the parking lot, they was like, you know, we have some unfortunate news. Um, your exit and make it. Um, I ended up finding out that I had a whole bunch of fibroids that didn't exist previously before. But obviously with being an African-American woman, when you have estrogen and you take shots that have estrogen in it, that is something that can come with it. Um, so there were some eggs that wasn't able to be retrieved during the process. So I was I was in shock. So the first day I was in shock to find out that that happened. Mm-hmm. Then a few weeks after that, I really started processing it and understanding like, okay, um, I'm mourning the egg that I worked so hard for because my AMH was so low that you couldn't get and then I was also mourning the ones that she was able to retrieve that didn't make it. Yeah. So it was so many things that was happening in my mind. And I had to really, really process it and try to figure out like what was next for me. Mm-hmm. And it's taken me up until this point to one, be able to talk about it without like getting choked up and being able to articulate myself. Yeah. But two, to be ready to have my next cycle because I'm so traumatized. So Mm -hmm. now that I've gotten over that and I know that I want to have a child and now I know what I can and can't do from my first cycle, we're ready to proceed forward with the second. Mm -hmm. Okay. So do you have like timing for this next, next phase or like what's. So I finally went for, um, another, I guess, uh, virtual Mm -hmm. with a reproductive endocrinologist that I feel comfortable with. Yeah. Um, but because I live in Long Island, um, my first one was in the city and going to the city and working in Long Island, living in Long Island. I didn't understand like how exhausting that can be because oh, yeah. you have to be monitored and, you know, it's timed and everything right. is very specific. So right. I was leaving six o'clock in the morning to make my eight o'clock in the morning monitoring. It was just a lot. That's a so lot. Yeah. Now I finally like narrowed it down to one clinic that I want to go with and they have one that's close by in Long Island. So I can okay. do my monitoring there. So I'm really happy about that because they that's work great. together. Okay. So that's my next step. But then I had got scared because I do have these fibroids, but they're very, very small but they're not big enough to be operated on. So mm. we're dealing with a different situation before it was, I just have a low AMH. Now it's, I have a low AMH and I have fibers that we have to try to navigate through to make sure that we retrieve as many eggs as possible. So right. I wanted to make sure that I was with someone that was skilled to be able to navigate through situations like Brilliant. that, because right. it's, it's a different story when you're just retrieving it's it's in and out. <laughs> right. Um, so I was just yeah. making sure that I felt comfortable 
with my new physician in a new clinic. And now that I do, I'm going Good. to see what my next steps are because January 1st starts new insurance. Right. Um, so then I'll proceed forward then. Okay. Tell me about a little bit more about just the, the trauma of all of this for you. Like, what are some tools that you've picked up along the way? You said you go to therapy. I'm a huge fan of therapy in general. How mm-hmm. else have you learned how to deal with just this you know, traumatic situation and the whole thing that you've been going through? Yeah, so my husband allowed this amazing thing and I got a dog during the pandemic. Um, her name is Lyric. She'll be three in March now, um, mm-hmm. but I got her when she was eight weeks old. And this was the pivotal moment for me as far as being a dog mom. Yeah. Is that when I walked upstairs after my retrieval, I will never, well, I always remember that January 7th, but I will never forget that moment. I was laying on my couch, like it was just a couch here. So I was laying on my couch and I was just like this, like I was just, I didn't even know what to say. My husband didn't know what to say. I was just like this. And mm-hmm. my daughter got up on the couch and she just laid here. And like, I post that picture sometimes on social media because like, yeah. it's, that's a reminder of the love that she has for me. Cause I didn't know a thing about being a dog parent. Yeah. So like she was just there and her pose is here. Yes. And they like, know, right. Just... They know. And I've seen Lyric on your social media with her little bow. <laughs> <laughs> she hates that, but she, she was like, all right, mom, just real quick, take the picture and be over with it. But it's she's so a therapy dog without me even knowing that I yeah. needed her for a part of my therapy process. That's so amazing. she has been very influential into helping that. Yeah. My friends and my family, and of course, my husband, like being able to now interpret and say that this is our condition. This is our infertility. This is our journey, mm-hmm. our journey to parenthood. Like the slightest change from saying my to our allowed me to not feel isolated. So mm-hmm. I, I had to personally check myself as not only being an individual that's dealing with infertility, but being a wife that deals with infertility because I never want to isolate my husband from not feeling wanted or loved during this process because he's just as important. And I don't understand what he's going through because he's trying so much to honor and make sure that he identifies with what I'm going through. Mm -hmm. So I had to also change my perspective in that area as it relates to us and as a unit to continue to move forward because I would I wouldn't be able to be who I am today if it wasn't for him helping me along the journey. Then I also started doing things that I love. Like I took this time off because one, I needed to process and I needed I went to a reproductive immunologist as well. I told you I go down rabbit hole alley. Yes. I went to reproductive immunologist. (laughs) Um (laughs) because I just wanted to make sure that I was doing everything that I could as a patient Uh for my next cycle. Um, and that's what helped me for this past year, because that was the first year. The first year was getting over the trauma, going to another doctor for second opinion. And then this year was me focusing on myself. And I like I can't even imagine all of the things and all of the doors that open for me during this process by just letting go and being free. Mm, um, I love I that. In martial arts, that was something that I've always wanted to do. And I never did it. And just really understanding my state of mind when I'm there doing martial arts have really helped me and calmed me to be able to move forward for whatever next is. And so I took that time and now I'm, I'm in a better place. Like it's so crazy because I was just telling two of my closest friends, um, we call us ourselves chronic sisters in our, (laughs) (laughs) and our messages, one have epilepsy, Mm -hmm. the other one have another condition as well Mm -hmm. um, with her cycle, PMDD. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? I'm okay with whatever motherhood looks like for me. Like I literally was just telling him that two weeks ago. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm not obsessed over being a mom. Mm-hmm. I know that it's going to happen, but I also realized that I give so much motherly love to people mm-hmm. on my platform that I can't negate that that's a part of my journey of motherhood as well. I love because that. being able to understand and see that I'm helping someone take that next step on their journey to motherhood, someone contacting me and saying, hey, just letting you know that I'm pregnant, like I'm scared, like I haven't announced it yet. You know, what do I do in this process? Like all of those things are like God's indication of letting me know mm-hmm. that I'm in the right lane of where I need to be on my path to motherhood of whatever that is. And when I started recognizing and understanding that that's a part of me being a mother 
that's what helped my process be easier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can we talk about the relationship piece of this too? Because I've been very vocal about how my listeners know this, that, you know, my, my husband and I were not on the same page at all when it came, you know, I had secondary infertility. So my daughter, you know, was about three and a half when we started trying for number two and, you know, he was an only child. So he was kind of like, we're good. And I was like, I can't not want this second one. You know, we just were, we were in a really dark place. So did you guys ever get to a point where you weren't seeing eye to eye? And if so, how did you navigate that? Yeah. So that first year, like right after that infertility, IVF cycle, that just wasn't something that wasn't discussed. Mm -hmm. And that was helpful. But then I also realized that that also was detrimental because it wasn't discussed. And when I talked to my husband to talk to him to try to understand his perspective, his perspective like shocked me because he thought that it was his fault. And I was like, but how could you think that it's your fault? Like it's my medical condition, but I never, and this is, this is the, this was the aha moment that made me change my perspective because he gave me mostly all of my injections, except like the two times when he had to go to work early and the nurse mm-hmm. had to give it to me. And I was like, yeah, but you was helpful. And he's like, yeah, but what if I did something wrong? Like, what if I miss it? I'm like, you didn't uh, miss anything. Yeah. And it, it clicked at that moment. Like this affects him too, April. Like it's not just you. Yes. You need to calm down. You need <laughs> to make sure right. that you're being there for him too, because yeah. this was traumatic for him too. And Men don't talk much. Like the way that they communicate is way different yeah. than how we communicate because we over-communicate. Sometimes our <laughs> over-communication <laughs> sometimes yes. isn't what it needs to be. I, but yes. it's also in those moments that as wives and as me being a wife, I understand that I have to be silent sometimes. And it's in those moments of silence that he communicates more to me so that I can understand how I can be the best person to show up for him. Mm-hmm. So that was what really helped and changed it. Um, whether or not he still feels that way, he says that he doesn't, I pray and hope that he doesn't yeah. um, because it's definitely not his fault. And I, I, I want to make sure that I continue to honor him, whether I have interviews or whether I talk to him privately to let him know that I do appreciate him. And to ask him if he feels comfortable with giving the injections on the Mm -hmm. second cycle, because I would never want to bring on that trauma again to him, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because then I would have to find a way for us to be happy within that space for us to be able to be there for each other during the process. So I'm like super, super mindful of that because he's such an amazing person and I would never want him to understand that he's not like, that's something that I would never want, especially during this process, because it's going to take both of us to be able to go through the journey because my goal is to be able to have embryos. And when I have embryos, it's going to be a whole nother part of the journey that we're going to have to deal with. And I want to just make sure that we have that firm foundation now to be able to move forward to that next point. Oh my gosh. I I really understood that being silent in those moments would give the opportunity for him to talk. Yes. I feel like I need to be nicer to my husband hearing you talk about your husband. <laughs> he says, and it, take, it takes time. It takes time because again, like when I get into my deep pit of sadness, yeah. I again, I, I go quiet and that's not a positive quiet for me. And yeah. then that takes away from him being able to be heard and to be noticed. Right. So I just, I'm, I'm always daily, constantly going through the process of being able to understand that. Like recently when I went to my new reproductive endocrinologist, like I had a whole meltdown and I didn't even want to tell him that my AMH dropped lower. Like I was embarrassed. Like I knew that that was something that could happen, but Mm. I didn't want to trigger anything over again. And I just started boohoo crying and, you know, he immediately like stepped in to husband Superman mode. And he's like, it's okay. I'm like, it is not okay. Like I probably have like half an egg. Like I was going through like, oh, I went through a whole thing because it's so hurtful for me because I'm like, and that was another thing of why like I became okay with where I am in motherhood was because I started identifying that I can't be able without being a mother. Yes. Like I can't be a wife without being a mother. 
Like, I can't be successful in this marriage without making sure that I produce a child. And I'm still going through that in therapy because that really is a thing for me. And I have to negate all of that because if I do, then I will stay in that place and I won't be able to be present for him, more Mm -hmm. or less for myself. Mm -hmm. So these are things that I'm constantly telling myself. And I'm like, April, like, come to the side a little bit and and focus on him. And that's, that's what helps me not go down those rabbit holes. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I could listen to you talk all day. (laughs) Honestly, I'm like learning so much. Um, Tell me about the endo brunch. Is that still a thing? Is it still happening? Oh my gosh. Yes. And it's so funny. And I want to buy a ticket to your next one. Cause I'm far. I'm just outside of New York. I I was in Brooklyn for years and now I'm in Jersey, like 30 minutes outside the city. So I'd love this is what happened. The world shut down yeah. the day of my endo brunch. Like the day of my endo brunch. Right. Like, like March governor, 20th or whatever that was. <laughs> they made the announcement on the 19th. The okay. world shut down. Yeah. I I was devastated. I was devastated. Like people from out of town have bought tickets. And I I had to troubleshoot, like, okay, guys, the brunch is still happening. I don't know when. If you guys can please still trust me. <laughs> And know that it's coming. And so far, everyone still wants to come. So now I'm going to have to get a bigger space because now oh, yeah. the pandemic brought on like, oh, there really is a brunch happening. Yes. Um, so my goal is to do it next year. My whole goal for the endo brunch, and it still is, is to be able to bring people together. Yeah. And not just women that's dealing with the condition, but friends and their supporters to come together as well. Right. Just so that they can be next to someone else to be like, wow, like you have it too? Or what condition do you have? Because I didn't have that totally when I was going through my depression and when I was trying to navigate and I was sitting there searching on Instagram trying to find somebody. And I'm like, no, you can actually sit to somebody and you can look to your left and you can look to your right and understand that you can possibly go home with a best friend. Like, and that was the goal of why I created the brunch. But then I also wanted it to be informational because sometimes it's hard and people don't go down a rabbit hole (laughs) like I do in the research, but they want to be able to have that access and to have the knowledge so that they can move forward and to give them the confidence to be able to move forward. So that was all of the reasons why I created the end of brunch, but prayerfully um, pandemic pending, it'll be next summer. Great. Cannot wait. I would love to be- And in person. Yeah, for (laughs) sure. (laughs) For sure, for sure. Um, Well, before we wrap, April, tell me about, you know, you're obviously so brilliant and such a great advocate. And I feel like my heart like has cracked open and like, I feel so much love for you and I'm sending you so much- you know, all the good vibes and everything for your next cycle. Tell, tell people who are listening, what things do you wish that you knew then that you do know now, if somebody's kind of new to the world of fertility, infertility, endo, all the things, are there like a couple big, big things that you wish you knew? Yeah. So this is something that I say all the time. Um, and I really live by it and it's your pace, your race. Mm-hmm. I think that sometimes we look at other individuals, whether it's social media or hearing someone else's journey, and we can idolize that and not to a point where we look at it as being an idol. But sometimes we really sit there and be like, wow, okay, well, maybe I can do that. And you try so hard to achieve someone else's life without understanding the struggle and the journey that they went through one to achieve it. And two, understanding that because it's not your journey, that it's not going to be something tangible for you to actually reach. Mm -hmm. Um, And just being able to be mindful of who you are. And like we were created uniquely and wonderfully for us to be out here and be great. And that does include your fertility journey. And I think that is really hard sometimes because we think about something so big as infertility that sometimes we lose ourselves as well because I, plenty of times. Um, So that's something that like, I really live by like your pace, your race, just for people to really understand that it really is your journey and what may work for you is not going to work for someone else. And you don't know the trajectory of your life. Like no one is able to really predict that. But if you stay on the course of what you're supposed to do, you'll be able to achieve that. The other thing are resources. This is something that like I like really firmly believe in. Um, like I said, I'm fortunate enough to be able to have access to different resources. 
but there are amazing resources out there that people may not know about or may not have access to, which is why like, I'm a firm believer of all of the things that I do, like fertility outreach, like being able to have a fertility coach. Like These are all of the different things that people may not know that they have access to, but it really does help to be able to get yourself out there once to understand. And, you know, I'm big on collecting data and collecting information um, and having something like fertility outreach and it being text-based, like we're always on social media. We're always using our smartphones. And sometimes it's hard to be able to articulate everything, but we know how to articulate ourselves through text message and to be able to communicate like what's next because we don't really know what's next. Um, mm-hmm. So just really just searching out there for resources and free resources to be able to understand like what's next for you while you're navigating your fertility journey and really to pull, their thing is to pull from your support system like and what your support system looks like for you. Because I know that sometimes we may wish that this person is there and that person is there, but Use the strong players and the pillars that are in your life that you actually have that will be able to be in your corner because that's what you're going to need to be able to make it through whatever the next part of your fertility journey is going to be. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks again to April Christina. Guys, if you're not already, please follow her at I'm April Christina on Instagram. And, you know, she's an open book and she will answer all your endo questions or fertility questions. She's really great. She is also a partner for Fertility Out Loud's newest offering, Fertility Outreach. So check that out as well. And I wanted to let you guys know, as always, check out Fertility Rally if you're looking for a community, if you're looking for a space of people who get it. We have more than 500 active members now all over the globe. We do virtual support groups four times a week. We have three private Facebook groups where you can vent and ask questions and support each other. We've had this community that has turned into a family and it's the place I wish I had when I was going through it. So check us out on Instagram at Fertility Rally or on our website, which is fertilityrally.com. We open up again January 1st and we take new members for the first week of every month. So DM me at Infertility of Stories or on Fertility Rally if you have any questions, but we would love to see you guys. Everybody's welcome no matter what they're going through. Even if you haven't started treatment yet, but you think you might have to soon, it's a good place to get in and find your people and feel supported. So thank you so much for listening. Thanks again to April. Talk to you guys soon.